0: Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 578 of the podcast and it is Monday the 11th of October 2021 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to Michael Kilman about how to build better worlds by using aspects of anthropology, which is basically the study of human cultures. And we certainly live in an interesting time in history in order to do that. I really could have talked to Michael for ages as this is such a massive topic and his book is very good. Co-written book, I should say. But I hope we give you some ideas or at least spark more questions for your writing. So that's coming up in the interview section. In publishing and book marketing news, thanks to Sarah Rosette, who forwarded me an interesting piece from Publishers Weekly about the licensing of the late Sue Grafton's Alphabet book series featuring Kinsey Malone, or Milhone, I don't know how you meant to say that, for TV and film. Despite Grafton's stated wishes before she died, quote, I will never sell Kinsey to Hollywood and I have made my children promise not to sell her. We've taken a blood oath and if they do so I will come back from the grave which they know I can do, End quote. Book Riot goes into more detail about it and essentially she didn't want this to happen before she died but uh, her family have now uh, licensed the books and presumably they might finish them because she never got to Z. And it sort of begs the question of what is more important, an author's wishes after they're dead or profit created by new content for billions of people to enjoy, new books, new TV series and also profit for the family and the estate. So this is a this is such an interesting thing because of course we're the authors generally we're the authors and we think that we want to control everything. We and and, and it's funny because when I a few years ago I really thought that what I wanted to do was set up a, a trust and do all of these things to make sure that my estate kept running and I would pay someone to sort of carry on doing it. And now I've kind of changed changed my mind. Um, Because of this trend for older musicians to sell their backlists, which is a very good way to take action before you die to help your family to make a decision around your intellectual property. So this week, Tina Turner was the latest to join the ranks, as reported in The Guardian which says the Queen of Rock and Roll sold her artist and writer's shares of her recording, as well as the management of her name, her image and likeness, in the largest deal struck with a single artist in BMG's history. The latest artist to cash in on the rocketing value of evergreen hits in the streaming era, following in the footsteps of Bob Dylan and many more. And of course, if you... Compare that to what happened to Prince and Aretha Franklin's estates, both who died without a will. The (laughs) You just think there's so many possibilities of what can happen after you die. Look, most of us are not Prince or Tina Turner. But to be fair, we don't know what's going to happen over the next however many years. And also, we don't know what Could happen with our IP. Now, I think I've mentioned this before, but what I think is going to happen and is starting to happen is this purchasing of dead author estates or the selling of our estates before we die. So It's something that perhaps we ought to think about when you do your, obviously you're going to sort out your will, but also write a letter of intent to your family and your heirs and successors and make your wishes known. So I covered this with Matt Buckman in episode 351 on estate planning and uh, Matt talks about this letter, letter of wishes, but also I think once you're dead, you're dead. (laughs) really do we think that sue grafton is going to come back from the grave i don't actually believe that I think that her family made a decision and they made, they had an offer and look, her family are probably not the best people to manage her IP. This company who specialises in IP management is going to be a better com- company to do that. So I personally think while I'm alive, I'm the best person to manage my IP up to a point when I decide I'm not. But um, when I look at my family, um, even with Jonathan, you know, the, Jonathan worked in the company for a couple of years, but it's it's not his thing. It's just not, he's not interested. And that's completely fine. What we have to think is, all right, what's the best thing for our readership and our series? So um I, I had an uh, author friend who had sadly died of, of cancer, and she hadn't finished her series. And she essentially sketched out a number of books for her partner to finish, but her partner was a writer so in that situation that's fair enough but most of us don't have that (laughs) relationship (laughs) going on so yeah it's something to think about but I think the lesson is really sort out your will sort out your letter of intent but also relax enjoy being alive (laughs) not worry too much about what happens later (laughs) Talking about being alive and writing <laughs> in useful stuff. Do you want to learn more about the writing craft and the business of being an author? And pay what you like for an awesome ebook bundle. The NaNoWriMo story bundle is out now with 16 books on planning to write and productivity, how to be a writing machine and writing faster, discovery writing and plotting, character development. Uh, tips on publishing from release strategies for indies to avoiding the slush pile, if you want to go the traditional route, as well as several books on marketing. Available for a limited time at storybundle.com forward slash nano, N-A-N-O and of course you, it's very useful even if, you're, if you are if you don't want to do NaNoWriMo National Novel Writing Month in November, we just do it at this time of year. <laughs> so go and check it out at storybundle.com forward slash nano get a great bundle of books and help more authors sell direct because this is a direct deal. So in my personal update, you might hear that I'm a little tired in my voice because I am just back from walking the St. Cuthbert's Way in Northumberland in the northeast of England from, well, it's actually from Melrose in Scotland to Lindisfarne, Holy Island on the northeast coast. And uh, you can see all my pictures on Instagram at JFPenAuthor or Facebook at JFPenAuthor. Um, I've been putting pictures there. I'm also going to, obviously, I'm going to do blog posts on books and travel with loads of pictures and podcast episode over there in the next couple Of months, and uh, it will be another book at some point. So, I went with the intention of getting outside my comfort zone because of feeling like. You know, the idea of going into a rut, of of feeling like you're in a rut, and the reason you get in a rut is because you're ploughing the same path over and over and over again. I feel like the pandemic has deepened this comfort rut that I've been in, that we've all been in, because we've optimised our home lives generally if we can. And we've eaten certain food and we've walked the same area and done the same things. And I just really, really needed to get out that rut. I feel like my world, all of our worlds have significantly shrunk in the last 18 months. And so I I needed something different. And I'd never been to Northumberland, which is an incredibly beautiful area of England and just stunning, really. But... (laughs) I did i mean i was uh, I was sitting there at sort of two o'clock one morning in quite a lot of pain after the first big day. The first day was very long distance, and of course i was so I was carrying all my own gear. And I definitely, my pack was too heavy and I I didn't get blisters on my last big walk, but I got a lot of blisters and there were challenges of distance and weather and terrain and navigation and my own confidence, because this was also a, to prove to myself that I was over COVID and the fatigue and all of that. I can safely say I'm over COVID. <laughs> Because I did I did manage it, but there was this, this time at 2am, I was sitting there and I, I'd actually emailed Jonathan and said, why, I, I think I'll just come home today. I can't do this. I just can't do it. And then I sort of talked myself back into it and wrote in my journal all the reasons why I wanted to carry on. And I know it wouldn't have been like you guys wouldn't have judged me and I, I wouldn't have felt shame by giving up because I, I truly really was very tired, quite emotionally broken. <laughs> But then I, I kind of was like, no, I'm going to do this. And I got up that morning and walked 10 hours in um, a really bad rainstorm all day. And I still did it. So I, it was and then we, I had a couple of days of gorgeous weather and my confidence is better. I did this difficult solo and not not really difficult, but def, definitely a lot more challenging than the Pilgrim's Way, which I did last year. Did get a bit lost. So I did some extra kilometres. <laughs> and uh, yeah it was definitely a challenge I was definitely outside my comfort zone (laughs) so yeah I needed to get away and it it is like another country really people speak in quite a different way and uh, although some in the west country I, I can't understand some people in the west country but in Northumberland there's definitely a very different accent different food really great seafood so yeah it was good it was four days of 10 hour a day walking with a full pack up and down hills. And then the final day was crossing the sand over to Lindisfarne Island, which is basically the island is cut off by tides twice a day. And you can only walk over at low tide. You can only drive over at low tide. And so it's this very interesting atmosphere on the island. And I, I walked over, which was one of the most wonderful times, to be honest. I think every pilgrimage needs to end with a significant moment. And my significant moment was walking alone across those sands. Just, yeah, beautiful. And then I stayed on the island, which if you go to Lindisfarne, I absolutely recommend you stay because it's quite quite the tourist Disneyland when the causeway opens, all these cars come over and then everyone leaves again. And I was there on a beautiful day. The sun was out. It was just lovely. But it's interesting because I so I stayed and when everyone leaves, it's quiet. And then in the morning, I got up for a, a sun, the sunrise and sort of was watching the seals in the channel. And it, it was just beautiful. Interestingly, it's Cuthbert, who lived there, he was an important bishop. So he had a, a day job, which was being a bishop. And um, even then he met the the royals of the time and all of that. So he worked hard but then he withdrew to this island for long periods alone and he even lived on this even smaller island just off the coast of the other island so he could get away. And he actually built a wall to stop himself looking at the mainland. He didn't want to be reminded of the ability to get off. He wanted to think about God and big ideas and be alone in solitude And he lived between these worlds, this sort of court and working hard and doing that and then this solitude and thinking and being alone. And I was very much thinking about this when I was on Lindisfarne because I had those moments of really thinking, wow, I love this. Maybe I should just live on an island, uh, give up all of my public-facing stuff (laughs) and Be here. I was so happy. It was really just this wonderful peace and quiet. But then I thought about it again and thought the reason that I like that so much is because of this. I find great meaning in doing this in my books and my podcasts and uh, helping other people and doing all the things we do. And I want people to find out about my books. And I know that being a hermit on an island is not the answer. (laughs) I also think it wouldn't satisfy me for very long. But what we do need, all of us, is these periods of withdrawal and solitude. And we need to put up that wall. We need to be on an island where the tide has cut us off. And so it made me consider how can we create these periods of withdrawal more easily? How could we think about the tide coming in and forcing us to stop? Because there's this point where you cannot get off that island. I mean, yes, you can take a boat, but some days the sea is really wild and all of that. And so think about how could you do this in your life? How can you create a sort of mental tide coming in, cutting you off, and then focus on solitude and nature and thinking and ignoring all the noise of the world? Uh, So, yeah, I really think we need to do more of that. Well, I mean, for example, I didn't even know that Facebook had gone down. (laughs) I only found out about that later. And I sort of saw all the angst that was going on. And it was weird because I didn't even know about it, which was funny. And that I didn't, I did look at the news a little bit, but barely. And just essentially, when you walk for that long every day, the only thing you can do is eat and sleep. And write your journal I wrote a lot of journal thoughts big thoughts which is good so anyway that's my question for you this week how could you think about the tide coming in and forcing you to stop and just enjoy the sunrise and being in nature or however you get your renewal but I certainly feel renewed so uh, more to come no doubt on the St Cuthbert's Way but if you yeah if you can go and see my pictures now if you like on Instagram and Facebook <laughs> So on the writing side, I've just got my comments and edits back from my editor on Tomb of Relics. And I have a uh, medieval (laughs) friend (laughs) who's doing a a beta read from the medieval point of view. It's not a historical novel. It's only got one chapter, the prologue, written back in the uh, 13th century, 12th century, something like that. (laughs) 12th century. I So yes, I will be finishing that this week. And it is early because I'm not releasing it until December. But I want to try and do is get the audiobook done. I'm also still investigating this option for the NFTs. And I'm going to do a blog post about this in the next couple of weeks as things solidify around that. But basically in November, I will be doing an NFT and I'll talk about it soon. When I know more what I'm doing, things changing every single day in that space. Also, thanks for all your comments and tweets about The Relaxed Author. And also, thank you for your book reviews. And if you have read the book, we really would appreciate your reviews on whichever site you bought from. Uh, So or if you bought direct from me, you can still leave reviews on the sites. So, yeah, we'd appreciate that. My co-author, Mark Leslie Lefave, has been doing the heavy lifting because I just went away. I was being a relaxed author. Well, kind of relaxed. My, my, Jonathan laughs. He's like, your idea of relaxing is walking <laughs> 130 kilometres <laughs> with a pack on. <laughs> Yes. So I was doing relaxing in my own time and Mark was doing the heavy lifting. He is on the Six Figure Author podcast and also the Indie Author podcast and talking about how to keep from stressing out as an author while still achieving your goals. And also you might get some insights from his perspective on co-writing with me. Oh, it's funny. And in fact, Jay Thorne emailed me and uh he won't mind me sharing this and basically said because he's worked with Mark and me, he's like, I can't believe you two pulled this off. <laughs> because you're so different and it, as I shared about on the show the other week with Mark I didn't realise that Mark and I were so different in our personalities and the way we work so that was quite funny so you, you think you know someone and then you work together and you realise how different differently that working together is a completely different thing than being sociable together I mean obviously but yeah anyway go and listen to Mark on those shows the indie author and six figure author's links in the show notes also if you enjoyed the episode with Becca Time a few weeks back. Check out the Ask Ally podcast with me and Orna Ross as we talk about focusing on your strengths as a writer and ways to beat comparisonitis. Because a lot of the times, our comparisonitis relates to our weaknesses because we're not great in an area. So we say, Oh, like me, oh, why can't I be as good at Amazon ads as Mark Dawson or whatever? Or why can't I write as many books as Lindsay (laughs) Broker?" And and but these are skills that I are not my strengths. So Orna and I have a great discussion. We both did our strengths assessment and we both talk about how it's helped us in our creative and business processes. So you can find that. So ask Ally, A-L-L-I or you can get over on selfpublishingadvice.org. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments this week. To uh, Be Serious says, I remember Jonah Lehrer's work before his plagiarism, brouhaha, blow up. It was through an article of Jonah's in Wired that I found uh, Eric Kandel's wonderful tome, The Age of Insight. I'm glad to see he's done his penitence and has returned to writing. I've ordered his new book. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm also, I was so... It was good to talk to Jonah, I think, and really good to hear that he's returned to writing. I do think that if we are people who write, which we all are, we cannot stop writing and we shouldn't stop. I think it will probably make us sick. doesn't mean we have to publish everything, of course, but I think writing is a default way that we figure out the world. And yeah, I, there's no way <laughs> someone put on, you know, there's always these questions on Twitter. If, if you won the lottery, if you won multi-millions, would you ever write again? I'm like, well, of course I would. What else would I do with my time? <laughs> Uh, Also Katie Bowes sent me a picture listening to the backlist while mowing spring in the Waikato in New Zealand hoping to get out of lockdown in time to meet (laughs) the creative pen because I'm going to New Zealand in a couple of months. Weird to be listening to podcasts from life before Covid was a thing. Thanks for the picture Katie and what is strange what's going to be very strange is that England is pretty much feels pretty normal. There are I'd say about 20% of people now wearing masks in shops and things but I was out in Bath yesterday and it was like there was no pandemic I mean it really was pretty normal which is is the first time it's felt like that really well obviously for 18 plus months it all seems a lot more stable and now that doesn't mean it's not going to go horribly wrong again but what's strange in New Zealand is they're just going into this they're just getting the Delta variant and we're going over there so I I do think that I could go from normality back into lockdown but such is life it is a family trip we have to go Jonathan hasn't seen his mum for two years so we are going barring some disaster And also thanks to Joni, who sent a lovely picture from the beach on the Gold Coast of Australia, where I also have family. So I've been there many times. And uh, she says, I only recently discovered you and have been binge listening the backlist. By the way, my 14 year old daughter loves listening to your accent. So she's happy for me to play the creative pen when she's in the car. Hello. To Joni's daughter. Joni didn't say what your name is, but hello. <laughs> uh, and Joni says, thank you for the futuristic updates. They are fascinating. Okay, going to be more on that soon. And you can tweet me at The Creative Pen. You can email Joanna at thecreativepen.com. You can leave a comment on the show notes and on the YouTube channel. And thank you very much. I always love to hear from you. Have more of a conversation. Right, so today's show is sponsored by Ingram Spark. Now, I use Ingram Spark to print and distribute my self published print books wide because with Ingram Spark, it's my content, but they help me do more with it. So, why even consider Ingram Spark? This is the question I get all the time. People are like, well, you know, I can just use KDP Print. <laughs> well, the point is, if you only use KDP Print, you are not publishing your book to the places that require discounts (laughs) and the catalogs that bookstores, libraries, universities, and print-on-demand sites in many countries use. These places will not even consider stocking or ordering your book if you're only on Amazon. So if you want to be available to bookstores and libraries, let's face it, we want to be in bookstores and libraries. We love bookstores and libraries. We want to be in their catalogues. We want to offer a discount so they can order the books and make money. Because remember, bookstores, this is how bookstores make money. Okay, they go onto the catalogue online, and Ingram distributes to all these different catalogues. So they go on and they order your book, but then they sell it and they have to have that margin. So If you don't have that, uh, they're not going to use it. Plus, a lot of these places would never order your book from Amazon for obvious reasons. (laughs) So if you care about having your book in these places, then using IngramSpark is a very good thing. This is not about eBooks either. If you're in KU, for example, you can still go wide with print. So what I do is I I have my books through KDP Print and IngramSpark. You will have access to over 40,000 retailers, independent bookstores, libraries, schools, and universities, chain bookstores, and more across a global network of distributors, including bookstores like Foils, Blackwells, and Waterstones in the UK, as well as Bookshop.org, which has become very popular in the pandemic, Booktopia in Australia and New Zealand, Chapters Indigo in Canada, as well as Walmart, Target, and loads of independent stores in the USA. Of course, it means your book will be available to order, but you will still have to drive demand. But since having my books on Ingram Spark, I've had many of you send pictures of my print books in libraries. I've sold them or had them sold through bookstores at book fairs, conventions, and in physical stores like Blackwell's in Edinburgh, which we stumbled across one day. You can choose to use returns, but it's not necessary. And personally, I don't do returns. And you can choose your discount percentage. You can also bulk order. For example, if you want uh, copies, for live events so for New Zealand even though we might be in lockdown I'm assuming I might be able to do an event in New Zealand so I ordered and in fact I've already done this I've shipped a whole load of books from the Australian Ingram plant to New Zealand and uh, so they're they're already there and if you work direct with schools or you do a bookstore event you can do the same thing I've actually had several bookstores order direct through my curlop Press site and you don't need a separate website just to say (laughs) but I get an email and then I ship the books directly to the bookstore and then they pay me so I've done all of that all works very well now, as I record this in October 2021, there are paper shortages and problems in the publishing supply chain globally. This is not just Ingram Spark, this is all publishers and a lot of supply chain issues in every area. So definitely get your print copies ordered well in advance for the holiday period. And that's why I've done the New Zealand books already, is I wanted them there for December/slash January. So get your print books ordered well in advance. So yes, I've been with IngramSpark for almost five years now. I'm very happy with how they work. So it's your content. Do more with it. Head over to IngramSpark.com. Right, this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time is sponsored by my wonderful patrons, especially all my futurist stuff. Thank you, patrons. You're amazing. Thank you to patrons who've been around for months and years. You guys are fantastic. And thanks to new patrons, Sheena Ager, Luke Condor and Rick Steiner. If you would like to support the show with just a couple of dollars a month or euros or GBP or whatever Canadian dollars... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio where I answer your questions every month. You also get money off my ebooks, audiobooks, and courses. You can support the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash The Creative Pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Michael Kilman is an anthropologist, filmmaker, artist, science fiction author and musician. Today we're talking about Build Better Worlds, an introduction to anthropology for game designers, fiction writers, and filmmakers, co-written with Kyra Wellstrom. So welcome, Michael.
1: Uh, Hi, nice to uh, be on the show.
0: Yeah, it's good to have you here. So first up, tell us a bit more about you and your background and how you got into anthropology and writing.
1: I kind of fell in love with anthropology in undergraduate after trying many majors and really trying to figure out who I was. And just kind of a whim, I took a class called anthropology. I was like, anthropology, what in the world is anthropology? Anthropology. And reading the course description, it says the study of human cultures. And I was like, Hmm, okay. All right. And I took the class and fell in love. And after that I was just set on a path for studying other cultures around the world. And, um, I had already been writing for quite a while. I started writing when I was about 14, 15 years old. I started my first attempt at a book. It was terrible, of course, (laughs) but, uh, uh, and so was much of my other work for, for quite a few years. I really didn't publish anything fiction wise until, uh, my thirties. So it was kind of a long, long process for me. But in, in the meantime, I went off to grad school in my mid twenties and, um, started working with other cultures. I've worked with a lot of Native American tribes over the years. I lived and worked in a rural village in Mexico and a lot of like urban anthropology, which means we study uh, populations and cities and stuff. And my area of focus in anthropology ultimately became media systems and representation. So looking at how media represents people and why is that problematic or or why is it good or, or all those various things, trying to uncover exactly what happens when you represent people in, you know, in spaces like fiction, for example, although video production was in my background. And so I focused a lot on that kind of media at the time. And then a couple of years ago, uh, Kira and I ran into each other again. We, uh, Ironically, we went uh, to the same uh, college as an, an undergraduate, but we never actually met each other until we were both teaching again at the same college we were both undergraduates in. So we met there and we became friends and we started talking. And Kira is a, um, she's a biological anthropologist, which means she focuses on the biological side of culture. How does biology and environment impact humans and uh, her area of specialty Uh, is in forensics. So if you've seen the show Bones, that's the kind of stuff she does. Although she doesn't really like to be compared to Bones because there's a lot of of problematic science in that show. You know, forensics is not so magical. And there's a number of other things that are, are troublesome with that. Although on the other hand, Bones has made physical anthropology very popular. So we can't fault it for that either. But uh, we were both talking about how representation and fiction or that have these a lot of these fictional worlds are they just don't work or they have big problems. They're they're not holistic, like real world cultures. And we started really thinking about it. And then one day I was just like, hey, we should write a book on world building and use all of our anthropological knowledge, both of our graduate degrees to drive the the book and then also as a teaching tool. So we use this we use a version of a, t- a textbook version of this that we've created which is a little bit different than the commercial version that people would buy off of Amazon because it's got a few more chapters but those chapters focus on things like methodology or things that you would do in the field that you wouldn't necessarily be interested in for building a fictional world, any built-in quizzes and all kinds of other stuff that textbook companies do. And obviously, we have to project a little bit with alien cultures or elven culture or troll culture or anything like that, right? But you, understanding a little anthropology can go a very long way into building a more solid and immersive kind of a fictional world.
0: And it is an excellent book and the book is incredibly rich and there's many different areas that writers can explore. But for me and many people listening who write thrillers or action adventure or fantasy, there's lots of things uh, around artefacts, around uh, sort of seeking things, group of people, go and find something. <laughs> I mean, obviously, uh, yeah. Tolkien, Tolkien would be a famous one. Uh, go and find something or go and return something and often called the MacGuffin in thrillers. And it was interesting because you have this whole chapter on the things we make and the things we leave behind. And that uh, was really evocative uh, chapter name as well. So what are some of the things we can consider in this area?
1: Oh, well, so, I mean, obviously you're talking about films like Indiana Jones or The Mummy, you know, the the idea that you have some sort of object you're chasing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But our chapter is really more about the archaeology of things, like, and I think largely what our chapter was trying to drive at is when you're building a fictional world, you're going to want unique objects in there, right? If, for example, I mean, well, certainly the Lord of the Rings, you have the ring itself as a good <laughs> I mean, I, it's a MacGuffin, right? But it's that's one such a present one because it's everywhere. It's not just uh, the whole story is about that one particular ring. But of course, a lot of thrillers are, are using more like we're chasing this artifact or we're hunting it down or, or those kind of things, a- you know. And I think um, what does that object represent is a good question. And we have a section. Uh, in the book on uh, cultural purity, and um, talking about how these, how in all arenas of life we're constructing these notions of purity, clean and dirty, right and wrong, good and bad, and we're always measuring these ideas. And this comes from uh, an anthropologist by the name of Mary Douglas. And so you should think about when you're having this sacred object that you're chasing around, or not even necessarily sacred, but this object that everyone's following around. You know, like uh, George Lucas. Uses R2D2 and C3PO is kind of like an interactive sort of MacGuffin in in a way. But what does it mean to the culture that originally built it? What does it mean to the people who are chasing it? Those are the kinds of questions that obviously a lot of thrillers are are asking. But how is it constructed or why was it constructed is is another question. You know, in archaeology, we don't just look at artifacts, we also look at features, which are kind of like the immovable version, right? A feature is a wall or it's a temple or it's a statue. It's something not easily moved. It's, you know, would take a lot of effort or ecofacts, flora and fauna, those kind of things. What animals are around, what plants are around, what what we can know about that stuff, right? So it's really interesting because we always joke like with all these MacGuffins out in the world, that's like the early archaeology. The early archaeology was the adventurers. They were like Kicking ass, taking names, kind of thing, going around the world, and and in, in doing a lot of looting. Really, quite honestly, not such very good ethical things in the early days of archaeology. Uh, a lot of very problematic stuff. I mean, there's it's known that the British Museum, even to this day, has all kinds of issues with repa- rep- repatriation of of artifacts that it, that it took during the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. And kept them in the British Museum. And it's uh, a lot of countries and cultures want their stuff back or whatever. And uh, this, you know, er- early archaeology is about this kind of adventure thing. But it's it's later on that... And I love to see a story like this where you have you know these treasure hunters looking for this object. But in reality, they found out, find out that the object maybe is not so important, but it's what knowledge comes from the object. Because modern archaeology is not about the objects. It's about what we can find out from them. And uh, Kira and I... We had this wonderful archaeology professor's undergraduate named Dr. Kent, and Dr. Kent had a saying: "It's not what you find, but what you find out." In fact, it's such a saying. I think two of my, my fellow undergraduates got it tattooed on them somewhere. So, so, like it's, and now they're now they're PhD archaeologists. So, it's, they got very mm. into that stuff.
0: Mm. No, I think that's really interesting. And asking these questions is so important. I mean, you mentioned that you have a sort of specialty in urban anthropology and, and cities. And of course, our culture right now, a lot of stuff won't remain of our particular culture, because it's digital, right. it's technology, and it it won't be able to be found. So my iPhone could be found in years to come, but it will be like, well, what is this metal thing and what does it do? And it's like you say, if it's what you can find out, well, then you can't actually find out because it's all disappeared. So I find that fascinating. What are some of the other things to consider if people are constructing cities? What are some of the things that you think are are important around cities and the urban
1: anthropology? Oh, gosh. Okay. So there's something so important uh, we talk about organizing government. It's called political integration. And it really is how integrated is your city or how integrated is the political system with the day-to-day lives of people. And like in class, the example I use is poop. Because if you think about it, if you're in a small-scale society and you need to poop, where do you go? Where do you go? You just go off into the woods somewhere, right? You dig a ditch and you're done because you only have 40 or 50 or a hundred people. It's not a big deal. You're not going to need to build a whole big public works. But if you look at a city and you think about what sanitation does, how many thousands of people it employs to deal with the sewers, to deal with public restrooms, to deal with uh, waste treatment management, to deal with the power systems, to build, you know, or to collect and manufacture the toilets and the materials for the toilets, Uh, all of this stuff, you're talking about thousands of people every day just to deal with sanitation and sanitation is one of the most important things to managing a clean city, because if you don't deal with sanitation, well, you get disease and you get all kinds of other things that go very poorly for you. And so it's, you know, I use that example kind of comedically in class. I have students tell me all the things that they need to deal with when you're, you're dealing with integrating a, a political system with, with waste management. But it's also with everything, right? I mean, when you're building a city you have to think about how are people going to get clothing? How are they going to get food? Where is it manufactured? Where is it, how is it distributed? And really, it comes down to the the fundamental problem of managing energy systems. And it's also why, you know, people in in this country in particular, we talk about, oh, small government, small government, small government. And I know, I'm sure they do in the UK quite a bit too. But the reality is once you really, really reach a certain size, of civilization, small government is like laughable. You can't not deal with infrastructure. It's not a question of if there'll be bigger government, it's how big it will be. So because there's just so many things that you have to regulate to make power systems work or or again, waste management or uh, food distribution. In order to make sure that your population isn't starving or, or freezing to death or all these other things, you have to do so many things. And then of course, the more technologically advanced you get, the more things you have to deal with. Because now we have telecommunications, Wi-Fi, phone calls. We're on Zoom here right now. And that has to be regulated to some degree in order for all the systems to work. So if you're thinking about building a city in another world, you're going to have to think about these, these kind of things and, and what kind of systems are in place. And the one way that I got away with this in my own fictional series, The Chronicles of the Great Migration, is one of my characters is a sanitation worker, for example. And so it's like... Now, my my series has a number of different main characters, but like one way I did, I showed different faces of the city, and this is something you can uh, try, uh, and, you know, George R. R. Martin, Stephen King, a bunch of other big writers are really good at switching point of views between different characters so that you get a, a bigger picture of culture. Now, you don't have to do it that way, of course, but I'm a kind of a big fan of, you know if you're going to make a really complex society, it's really useful to show different facets of that through different characters and different experiences.
0: And yes, so you've given an example there of a character who can see a certain thing. And, and also, I, I think it, also has a practical application in terms of locations and settings. So you mentioned there like sewers. I mean, sewers appear in loads of different stories as ways, a place that some marginalized people live, uh, a place for people to travel without being seen. And I was thinking as you were talking about the removing the dead and in london here in europe when the plagues happened yeah. under paris under paris you've got the catacombs which are full of the bones of the plague dead because what else do you do with them and the, these sort of uh places where they stored the dead and that's because the city didn't have anywhere to put them or in london right. the floods it would lift the bodies up out the graves and so as you say and that it's so rich when you consider okay and i've written in one of my books i i have um the paris catacombs and then you think okay so why do they exist and they exist for that reason so for people listening it is thinking about obviously your character and giving a glimpse that way and also uh, your settings I guess.
1: Yeah and it's tough because like when you're doing world building and you want to do it really well, you have to be careful of info dumping. Like you can't just dump all the information on it. And so one way to do is to show characters daily life, you know, what's it like to be just an average citizen who suddenly gets wrapped up in this big story inadvertently, right? It's, it's, Kind of like the call, the whole hero's journey theme, the call for adventure from like the farm boy, or a lot of those fantasy stories use that kind of trope, uh, where you have this kind of thing. But you can do that in, on all kinds of levels. You know, it doesn't even, your character doesn't even have to be like the hero. He can just be the victim or she can be the victim of the circumstance of maybe war between two giant fantasy armory, armies or something like that. It could just be it, the experiences of what is it like to be sitting there in the middle of a siege as trebuchets are launching into your city, right? I mean, you can just give give that feeling and drive a lot of tension and action simply by showing what it's like. To be a person in your city. I mean, you can even use that character for one chapter and then kill them off in like a maybe a, a, a prologue or something like that. Uh, I know George R. R. Martin loves to use a, like a prologue with a, a foreign character in Game of Thrones and then like kill them off at the end of the, the prologue. <laughs> and it's it, it's funny because like I, I was thinking about that the other day when I was working on my, my next book. And I was just like, you know, that's actually a really clever way of doing something. Cause it gives you a unique perspective. And then you can, then this is, is a character, not necessarily a character just to be discarded, but it shows you a slice of life that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Uh, and that can be really powerful. And that, that can be really useful for world building. Um, if you're trying to show a picture or a side of your world that the main character just isn't going to get to.
0: Mm, Yeah, I pretty much always use a prologue as well. And it's often like the one I'm writing at the moment, it's a thousand years ago in medieval times, for example. And and then it jumps forward into into now. But it's interesting because I feel like you could get so into all these details that you forget forget to actually write a book so you, oh, know, yeah. you mentioned uh <laughs> the problems with info dumping there and let's be honest I mean you mentioned sewers but I don't put sewers in my books I don't need to uh they're just not necessary so we don't have to build every kind of aspect of a world no absolutely what, not. what are some of the things that you find writers are particularly weak at I mean as in if you were to say right if you just did these two things, your worlds would be better?
1: Well, I mean, there's no real easy, simple answer to that, because obviously everyone's world building from a a different point of view or, or a different background of knowledge. But I think making your world holistic, in other words, we know that in the real world, when something changes in one arena of culture, it's going to ripple out into other arenas of culture, right? So think about how much has our culture changed introducing the smartphone. Right. Every arena of our lives has been altered by the smartphone. That's the way with any introduction of new I- any new idea or anything. Now, of course, it's a scalable, right? So small things, small changes, like the little pops in the back of our phone, the little handle things that people put on the back of their phone. Uh, obviously, that's going to change a few things, but it's not going to have like sweeping systemic change, because it's already like an existing major culture change having the, the cell phone in, in the first place, right? But a new religion coming to town uh, with then affect the political life of people, it would affect gender systems, it would affect their sexuality, it would affect a class, for example. Uh, And in fact, when Christian missionaries go to town, uh, a lot of times what they do is they completely disrupt the economic activity of of people's lives, sometimes on purpose, sometimes not on purpose. And then, you know, people who are of lower status will often take advantage of a new religion or a new idea ideology in town uh, to gain advantage for themselves. We see this all the time in indigenous societies that a missionary comes to town and it fractures the culture that's established and the people who maybe didn't have access to society before suddenly have new access and uh, use that that kind of power to change their lives in a lot of ways. And so the, the number one thing I tell people all the time is when you build a world, you can't just throw together a bunch of elements because it's just not how culture works. You need to be thinking about how do these systems work together to make a cohesive whole culture, right? So how does the religion integrate with your economics with your political system with identity in general how does how does all this work with on an individual identity level what kind of challenges or changes are people going to experience when when this change comes to town and one thing we also know very well is culture is constantly changing and really the whole debate over is, in a, is a debate over how much change will we allow? Right now, people who are consider themselves more conservative tend have a tendency to be more fearful uh, of these changes and new ideas, and so they'll look back to this kind of imagined glorious past and say, "Hey, we should go back like this," but there is no real going back. But, uh, and the people who consider them more pro- pro- progressive have a tendency. And again, these are trends or tendencies, right? Obviously there are pe- people are complex. You can't just say conservatives do X and, and progressives do X because almost everybody has some ideas that they're progressive at and some ideas that they're conservative about. And that's another thing to, to, to consider is you're building these whole cultural systems, human agency, people make choices, and this is, this is one way getting into avoiding stereotypes or getting these kind of places where we misrepresent people is instead of just making someone a two-dimensional standard stereotypical character, we give them complex choices and, and things. And, and those are kind of holism and complex human agency are the two big things that I think are so important that I think, you know, you can tell the difference between a good writer and a bad writer by those two things. I, I honestly do think that. And that doesn't mean that your world building is going to be perfect. No one's world building is going to be perfect because we all have gaps in our knowledge. We just can't know certain things. And that's why things like research are, are important into understanding and cultural systems. I mean, that's why we wrote this book. So people have a better understanding of what is in a world.
0: Yeah. And the other thing I think is interesting in terms of uh, creating these worlds and these can also be modern worlds like what you know I build an a world in inverted commas for my arcane thrillers for example and there are certain rules and, and things like that and uh but it's this how we humans are the same across time. I mean, I take our current culture. Sure, we have technology and stuff, but humans are behaving in exactly the same way as they did during other plagues and other threats. And, you know, um, the end times kind of millenarianism is what's going on right now. I mean, it's it's crazy. It's crazy. And you mentioned politics there. And we it, people think, oh, things are different now because we're so much more sophisticated, but we're really not. And I feel like you could put that you can write a historical novel and things will be different, but many things will be exactly the same. Like you mentioned fear right. and conspiracies about plagues have always happened. Like it was right, that group right. or that group. And so it, it I, I would encourage people, like, you don't have to reinvent everything from scratch, right? You can borrow things from cultural periods in history with the knowledge that people and or aliens <laughs> might behave in a similar way to how they did.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what's the name of that series? But it's uh, it's about dragon writers during the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, Temere, Temerae is the name of the book. So <laughs> instead of having like just the Napoleonic Wars, they also throw in dragon writers you know, and dragons as kind of like this air force. And it's just, it's so fun because and these are kind of a young adult kind of book. Uh, I read to, to one of my kids, and uh, it, it just really does a good job of taking the different cultural dimensions. And then in the, the later in the series, they go to other cultures with dragons and see how the dragons are t- treated differently based on different cultural systems. And I, I, they did such a um, that author did such a great job of really just taking one big element, which is simultaneously a fantastical creature and also a technology or a tool of war. And just showing what would have been different. And I think, I, and I don't know what the author's process was, but I think obviously you can take, you know, the first world war with the fighter planes and kind of make some good guesses about what it would be like to have an intelligent, thoughtful dragon kind of creature intermixed with that whole system, right? What, what are the hopes and dreams of dragons uh, amidst this air core and all this other kind of stuff? And, and what's unusual about this particular, Particular dragon or, or those kind of things. So, uh, you, so, absolutely, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can take a cultural system, look at how it's holistic, and say, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw dragons in there." And then you can just think about, okay, well, what would dragons do to politics? What are the economic things that we need to deal with dragons? Would dragons change religion? And how so? Would they? Would some people worship them, or fear them, or consider them like the devil? How? How would all of this work? So, absolutely, you don't have to get too super crazy. You don't have to do what I did, which is build a world thirteen hundred years in the future with giant walking cities, and then try to figure out how that social system would work in an enclosed ecosystem. You don't have to do anything like that. You can make small changes to historical periods or to the modern world you know, and a lot of people do this with zombie apocalypses, right? And and just really try to understand what drives the change. Who are the winners and losers is another good question to ask. Every society has winners and losers. So who are they? Especially when you add in a new technology, who would that benefit and who would that disenfranchise? So that's another really good question to ask yourself.
0: Mm, and uh i I was just looking up that book that sounds awesome. Uh, this series is by Naomi Novik, and there's nine alternate history fantasy novels about that t- Temeraire, as you mentioned as the first one. so yeah that that sounds awesome. I think that's actually a really good idea is to pick one thing that you can twist. Uh I mean I guess George R R Martin just took a historical novel and added dragons and zombies.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah pr- pretty much I mean a lot of what he's writing about you know people talk oh Game of Thrones is so brutal. Shit. Not read about medieval times. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's a terrible, terrible time. Like people were just jerks. I mean, you know, and, and women they did not do well in that time period. So he does a really good job. I mean, his books are so good. I just wish he would finish the damn things. That's all.
0: <laughs> yeah, but when you've been paid that amount of money, it's like, yeah, why bother? But I did want to ask you. Obviously, you've mentioned that you worked with Native American tribes, and and you specialize in this idea of media representation. And and we're living in a, a Difficult time when, I mean, a good time in that we're trying to redress difficulties in representation within culture, but also people are struggling with that in trying to do it in an authentic way. And you uh, are a white man, I think, white American man. And yet you've written about all these different cultures. And many people are afraid of trying to write about different cultures for fear of being accused of cultural appropriation. And yet we also do want to write diversity. I write very diverse characters in my books. And I don't particularly worry about it, to be honest, because I really try very hard to make it good and I also yes. have re- readers who are from those cultures who read them and um, tell me if I've you know made a mistake but how how do you suggest that we can use aspects of culture without going over the line with cultural appropriation?
1: So I mentioned a little earlier about agency right an agency in anthropology is def- defined essentially as the ability to act within a given cultural system. So it's not as if your choices are totally free or unlimited. This idea of total free will is kind of like, well, how can you make a choice if you don't know about something? Or how can you make a choice if you have a a systematic uh, oppression going on, right? So agency is limited by the cultural system in a lot of ways, or your choices are. And, And one thing to think about, though, is like, a Christian is not a Christian is not a Christian. I mean, you have many varieties of Christians and they did a survey of the American Catholic church a few years back on their, their political beliefs. You know, what, how do they feel about things like abortion or how do they feel the things about gay rights? And it turned out that most on most of the major issues, it was split pretty much 50, 50 among American Catholics and all these issues that are fundamental to the church. And so what what does that tell you? That tells you that no matter what cultural system a person is born into, that doesn't mean they have to agree with everything that the cultural system offers. And this is why stereotypes are are really dangerous, because in our minds, it's so easy to categorize people and lump them in with an entire group of people, forgetting that they're human beings with thoughts, hopes, and dreams, and all this other stuff. And We have a chapter in the book, um, chapter... Uh, Three, yes. Why the hell did they do that? Understanding the context, conditions, and choices made by people and fictional characters. And the reason we wrote that chapter is because when you're writing about another culture, you need to understand the historical context in which the other this person is living. So, what are the cultural conditions uh, that their life is uh, is also in, and then what choices do they make? So, when we talk about context, that's the history, that's the language they're born into, that's really the system that they're born into. The conditions are how what's their invig- individual experience, right? So, and I often use the metaphor of like a city block. The context is a city block. The, the conditions are the house that the person live in. And the choices are their life within that house, right? And so one of the ways to avoid kind of stereotypes is to consider, okay, here's this cultural system. And that means you're going to have to do research in the cultural system. You can't just... You know, especially when it comes to marginalized people, you really need to do your homework. That's that's the first step. Then you need to look at the conditions of that particular character's life. What was it like to grow up? Let's say if you're Native American growing up in American society, the conditions of your life are going to be uh, very different than like someone like me, who is a white person who grew up in a suburban uh, area of a city. Uh, being on a reservation is a completely different experience. So what are the conditions of what are my conditions in the same culture versus that person's right. And then you can begin to understand people's choices. And so using that model is kind of really helpful. But the other thing that's really helpful is things like sensitivity readers. If you're writing about a disabled character It might be super useful to hire a sensitivity reader who is, A, has the disability themselves, or B, works with the people who have disabilities or at least has a background in studying those things, right? And so a lot of the ways to avoid cultural appropriation is the due diligence of research. And then also consultation with a culture. If you're going to be writing about a a particularly oppressed group, then it does not hurt to read Reach out to those groups, to read as many books as you can on those groups, and really try to to understand those things. And and it's just like any other thing in writing. It requires diligence. It requires discipline. And if you want to be a better writer, then you have to do those things. If you just use lazy stereotypes then of course you're gonna to re to further the difficult situation. And then when we're talking about media anthropology, the one thing we see is how people are represented in long-term narratives. So not just once or twice in a book here or there, or even for a decade or two, but you're talking about decades or centuries. How people are represented over time is how we come to think on them, think of them on an unconscious level, right, our implicit Mm. bias. And so when we're cultural appropriating, or we're misrepresenting diverse populations, then we're, we're essentially contributing to those same stereotypes over and over again, and we're furthering the difficult situation of those people. And so it's really important to consider what am I recycling, or if I'm going to use a stereotype, uh, like a certain group is in a certain, like economic position, for example, what is that? Why? How's that useful? Is it useful because I'm trying to tell a story of the complexity of their identity? Is it useful because I'm trying to explain what that, what that world is like for them? Why are you picking this particular character for what reason? And, you know, you have to write diversity. You have to, unless there's a very specific... Like you're doing something very specific, like the Star Trek style, where everyone is one, looks like exactly the same in one side, and everyone looks exactly the same in the other. Unless you're doing something specific to bring attention to issues of diversity, you have to write diversely because the world is diverse. You can't go into any city and not meet a diverse group of people within a few minutes who's got different inclinations, thoughts, hopes, dreams, and all that stuff. So I, I think the most important thing to remember is that people are people wherever you go. They have to do the same things to survive and get through their day, but how they how they take that on it depends on their context and the conditions of their life.
0: Mm. Wow. So we're out of time, but coming back to where you started, which is anthropology is a study of human culture that has to underpin all of our writing. So this is just a fascinating topic. So definitely recommend your book, Build Better Worlds. So where can people find you and your books and everything you do online?
1: So you can find us on Amazon. My book series, the sci-fi series, Chronicles of Great Migration is also on Amazon and Kindle. I am also now answering world-building questions on TikTok. So you can find me author Michael Kilman. I try to do a couple a week at least. And then when people ask me questions, I do my best to answer them in a semi-timely manner. You can also find my website where I have a series on anthropology called Anthropology in 10 or Less. That's all based on my website, which is luridianslaboratory.com, And you, you know, all my stuff is up on there. There's a whole page just devoted to world building. Before we wrote this book, I was writing world building blogs. And so there's a series of short blogs up there for people that are accessible. And so there's lots of resources on my website for world building stuff. And, and if you have a question, you're certainly welcome to ask.
0: Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for your time, Michael. That was fantastic.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. You have a great show.
0: So I hope you found the interview with Michael interesting and that it's given you some ideas around world building and aspects to consider in your writing. Next week, I'm talking about how to research your book with Vicky Carter, the author's librarian. When we go into detail about research techniques, keeping track of your notes and avoiding unintentional plagiarism, as well as when to stop researching and write. I am a research addict, as you will know, so this was a fun discussion. So happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful.